Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hello, welcome. This is Football Social Daily going headlong into Monday with a whole load of football chat. There is loads of Premier League football coming this week. We'll keep you up to date with it all. Premier League fixtures Tuesday and Wednesday. Not to mention the weekend's games that have just happened. If you want a full review of all of those, you can head back in the timeline. Find the podcast with Fergal and the boys last night looking back at an exciting weekend of Premier League action. Not least that excellent game versus Liverpool City throwing up a result that, let's be honest, not many of us expected. Today on the podcast, we're going to be looking at the Premier League table as a whole. We've hit 10 games in for most teams and a quarter of the way into the season, it's fair to say you can get an idea of how it's going to pan out. So we're going to look at the runners and riders going up and down in the Premier League table shortly. We're also going to be talking about the Ballon d'Or gala, which is tonight, even though it seems to have flown completely under the radar. No one realised it was even happening. The once glittering gala to award the world's best footballers is about to take place. We'll be looking at who might possibly lift the trophy later. To do all that, I've got Nama Korn and Marley Anderson in the studio today. How are we doing, boys? I'm good. Good morning. Yes, not too bad. We've been comparing breakfasts this morning because Niall had a fancy breakfast from a hotel and <laughs> Marley did his regular trip to Greg's. I've had a cup of coffee. I don't know how fancy sausages, bacon and a hash brown <laughs> is. Looked but... <laughs> pretty good. It looked pretty good, to be fair. We're going to start today's podcast, as we always do on a Monday, with a traditional Monday moan and get in the sea. One thing that each of us wants to cast into the ocean from the weekend's footballing action. Marley, you can go first today. Uh, mine is one that's in the sea more than like plastic and bits of bits of unrecycled <laughs> stuff. Um, Fish. <laughs> just the, the standard of officiating and VAR this weekend was particularly terrible this weekend. There was so many calls from pretty much every game um, that were just horrendous. Like, it's just such basic stuff. Like, I felt... I don't like sticking up for Jurgen Klopp because I think he, he kind of uh, brings brings a lot on himself with the way he moans. But when you look at that decision, when Bernardo Silva was literally hanging off Mo Salah, mm. he was literally suspended in midair, and he doesn't get given for a shirt pull. It's like, if he's not pulling his shirt, he's Harry Potter, because he's levitating across the across the floor. There's no broomstick in sight. I've got to say, though, I liked the way the City-Liverpool game was officiated. I thought it was oh, an improvement. Badly for both teams. I just thought... I thought <laughs> he let a lot go, Anthony, Anthony Taylor, Taylor, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, he, let just, a lot he let it flow and he didn't blow up all the time. And he kind of... That could have been a game that was stop, start, stop, start all the way through because there was a lot of niggly fouls in it. But the fact he let stuff flow and you're right, that mm. particular incident you're talking about, Bernardo Silva on Salah, was a foul. Yeah. Did it really make a huge amount of difference? I not, don't know. Not really. It's just it's just the the standard of it. Like, how can... How can like, four different people look at that and all all say, well, we can't override the, mm. the referee's decision. Um, I was at Old Trafford yesterday watching Newcastle um, and there was two shock. Well, there was one shocker in that because I'm biased. Um, so that was when 
Varane blatantly tripped uh, Callum Wilson after getting skinned by him in the box, and there was just nothing. Like there was no, like it was just like no, no penalty. Like the where's VAR having a look at that? How mm. can you not see the ball go flying past Varane? Varane then steps right across Wilson and just trips him. It's like it's a clear penalty. Like even then, if you look back at VAR, you could probably say Sancho's was a penalty. I didn't see it that close. It was the opposite end to me, and I haven't seen the replays, but. The stills make it look like a penalty as well, so probably should have had a penalty each, um, and the game should have been one-one, and I'd have had some goals to watch. The biggest shocker for me, VAR-wise, was actually Leeds United's disallowed goal. Patrick Bamford, who should have been given a goal, but there was a little tiny shove on Gabriel that made him fly halfway across the pitch, caused that goal to be disallowed, and I think Leeds would be really aggrieved by that. Oh yeah, hundred percent. But I mean, you could even say. The biggest shocker from VAR in the Leeds game was that VAR didn't work for about 25 minutes at the start of the match where they had to stop the game, get the players off the pitch, only to give it 25 minutes to fix the goal line technology because the referees had lost all communication with technology for then the game to restart. And then the referee's in an awkward position where he's got to go up to the managers and explain what's happening. That needs to be relayed to the PA announcer Mm. who tells the stadium and everyone's thinking, oh, for God's sake, you know, we've come here for a three o'clock kickoff or whatever it was. And, you know, the game had barely finished by the time that I think the Man City game had already started at half four by the time the Leeds game had finished. So that was going to be one of my getting the C's was just over-reliance on technology. We've got to a point where technology was meant to enhance the game and now we're over-relying on it to the point where we can't have a game if the technology fails. And let's face it, computers break down a lot. But what's not unusual. What would the alternative be there? Because it was a power cut at Ellen Road that caused that delay to happen and the communications to be lost. But if they'd gone ahead with the game as it stands, with just the referee in assistance, with no goal line technology, with no VAR, I mean, VAR, you could probably go, well, we're not going to use it in this game. And you'd argue that was a level playing field. But if the goal line technology hadn't been there and the ball had crossed the line and a goal hadn't been given or had been given, the fury that would then create yeah. is unimaginable. Yeah, I mean, but Leeds fans are furious because they feel like they've been shafted by a decision from technology anyway. And it kind of goes back to what Marley was saying about the shirt pull, right? The big shirt pull incident in that City-Liverpool game was the goal that Phil Foden scored for Manchester City, where Mm. the ball came into Haaland's feet. He tried to spin away from Fabinho. And in my opinion, there's quite clearly a fistful of shirt there and he pulls him down. But yet some people in the studio, Michael Richards, for example, and others on the internet seem to think that that wasn't enough for a free kick because of what Anthony Taylor had let go in the game previously. And then we're talking about people re-refereeing the game, which is a term I absolutely Mm. despise. How can you be re-refereeing the game? The game is refereed as a whole. You don't re-referee the game. We have opened the floodgates for technology. Mm. So therefore, you need to understand that there is a chance the referee can change his mind. That's not re-refereeing the game. That is just refereeing the game because that's the position we've put ourselves in. Well, isn't that where VAR comes into its own, Marley? In the fact that, in that instance that Niall describes there... I think that's the right decision, by the way. It's no goal. Oh, yeah, it was 100%. But Mm. the idea that that wouldn't have been pulled back unless it resulted in a goal is right. So the game flows. If it had gone out for a goal kick, the game continues as normal. If it's a goal scored, then you look at the incident and go, well, that's had a significant impact. It's a clear error. Now we pull it back for VAR. That's what we want to see, right? Yeah, I, th- I think. <laughs> That's why linos it's... keep their flags down, though, isn't it? It's yeah. why they leave it till the last minute. Yeah, but even that comes with the thing of, like, how many times do you see a blatant offside and then somebody get, like, tackled and, like, like a last-ditch tackle and somebody can get hurt in that instance? It's like, 
it, it makes sense, but for marginal calls, yeah, let it run. But like we're getting to a point where you see obvious ones like Ronaldo at the weekend, he was he was offside by a mile. Um but he still puts it in because of the build up, like the the linesman is instructed to keep his slag down and everyone carries on and you know, what's to stop the goalkeeper coming out and smashing someone and getting hurt himself or breaking breaking a leg in in a one on one situation? It's it every little thing they do has such a big loophole attached to it that it's almost impossible to get right. The box is open, right? Pandora's, Pandora's box, box has been <laughs> lifted and there's no way it's going back in. So it, we've just got to put up with this now. I mean, you look at the Europa League and how, or the Europa Conference rather, I think the VAR is in play in the Europa League, isn't it? It's just not in the Europa Conference this season. And some of the decisions that have been missed or got wrong there, which would you rather have? Would you rather have the decisions being got wrong? Because we know VAR, despite the terrible decisions that are being made, we know VAR is improving the accuracy of match-changing decisions. They've done studies, they've looked at the, the, the research, and they've gone, this is a better scenario. So do we go, okay, well, we're happy with it. We're happy with the annoyance and the delays because it's getting something slightly better. Or do we want to go back to the old days of goals that shouldn't have stood standing? Uh, I think we're, you're, like, like you say, we're not going backwards anytime soon, are we? We're not going to... It's not like it's on a trial period. It's, I think it's here to stay and, and that's what we've got to get used to. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't sort of strive to, to iron out the, the creases in it because there's clearly many instances where it could be better. We talk about them every week, really. So it's um, it's one of those where as long as we keep working at it and listening to, to feedback rather than being blunt and saying, no, that this is just how it works. As long as they, they make little tweaks, we, we should get to a point where it works, you know, more often than not mm. without controversy. But I mean, we we do seem a little bit away from that. I do uh, think it is getting yeah. better. I do think we're seeing small improvements. Yeah, it just feels like when there are mistakes that they all come in one weekend. We had yeah. that. Was it the third or fourth game of the season where it was just an absolutely shambolic weekend of technology and refereeing decisions? And it feels like whenever that is the case, they all come on the same weekend. Mm. You know, for instance, in the championship, you've got a whole city against Birmingham where the goalposts, a bit like we talked about at Cardiff a few weeks back, yeah, yeah. were two inches too big. So you've got like ground staff getting a circular saw out, trying to chop down the goalposts two inches. I'm going to put one small thing in the sea, though, and it comes from yesterday's game at Anfield between Liverpool and Manchester City. Referee puts the board up, right, and it says six minutes of added time. So the Liverpool fans inside Anfield, after 90 minutes and 15 seconds proceed to start whistling mm. as if Anthony Taylor's going to blow the whistle there and go all right lads cheers that's it thanks very much and just end the game there <laughs> if it says six minutes of added time he's going to play six yeah. minutes of f-ing added time thanks that's for, what he's going to do thanks for stop the reminder whistling. fans yeah <laughs> stop whistling he's not going to blow the game up there is he wasting your time I do want to actually highlight something from that game as well as my get in the sea and it isn't the fans although the fans could easily be told to get in the sea from that game because I think what was a really good game of football was marred by crowd issues some of the chants and songs that were sung were really distasteful Mm. the coins being thrown at Pep Guardiola it's just unacceptable footballing behavior and I think you could probably trace it back to this rivalry between City and Liverpool getting more intense but still that doesn't excuse it in any way but I would like to say that Jurgen Klopp who is one of my least favorite people in football at the moment I'm developing a real distaste for the man I thought his behavior when the incident that Marley describes happened, mm. the foul Bernardo on Salah was just 
I think managers have got a responsibility to behave in a certain way. And I think yeah. going up to an official... Shouting in his face. Yes, mm. right mm. in his face. It's just not acceptable. And I'm not saying he's to blame for the crowd trouble in yeah. any way, but I think certainly you need to be able to hold up the managers and the players as the people who behave in the correct way. Yeah. And just imagine if you did that in Tesco. Just imagine if some they didn't have your favourite sausages in, so you went up to the cashier and screamed in their face like that. Yeah, You'd yeah. be arrested. It well, wouldn't just be a case for... You asked me this last week on the podcast, Jim, because Jurgen Klopp was asked a question about something Dietmar Hamann said about Liverpool yep. not having a spark or something like that. And he snapped back Jurgen Klopp at the journalist and went, well, get some better questions or something like that. I'd love someone to turn around and have a go back at Jurgen Klopp. I know the assistant referee will never do that, but I'd love the assistant to turn around, not square up to Jurgen Lump. Klopp, just, just say, <laughs> what, what do you think you're doing? Yeah. And instead, he just stood there and took it, which, OK, fair enough. I think that's what he's probably told to do. He's being professional, everything like that. Unlike Jurgen Klopp. But Jurgen Klopp has this this thing where, OK, he's extremely passionate and he said he deserved the red card and he did. And I don't know whether he's apologised for it or not. But, in but he post- won't. He won't apologise for it. That's what annoys me as well. He'll come out in the press he conference should, if he hasn't done already and he'll go, oh, yeah, I'm a passionate guy. And he'll yeah, kind yeah, of go, yeah. he'll dismiss it like that mm. with a laugh. And it's not about being a passionate guy. It's about no. not being a bellend. Yeah. And he's clearly being a bellend. <laughs> I'd just love someone, whether it be a reporter or uh, an assistant or a fourth official, to turn around and just go, get back in your technical area, get back in your seat. Mm. You know, I, I just I just think that sometimes managers need to get put in their place and I don't think officials do that yeah. enough. And I actually go to quite a lot of academy matches, mm. whether that be under 18s or under 21s. And sometimes when you're there, you end up quite close to the dugouts. And so you, when there's not that many people inside the ground, you can hear the conversations between mm. the coaching staff and the fourth official. Some of them are horrific. And what you've got to remember is this fourth official is normally a person on their own against six or seven members of the coaching staff. Gang mm. mentality. They're like ganging up on the fourth official. And often the fourth official's there just to defuse the situation. But occasionally, and this is very occasionally, you get a fourth official that will bite back and start arguing back. And I know that that's probably not the best thing to do professionally and you can cause the situation to escalate. But I quite like it. Yeah, definitely. I quite like it. I think that these coaches need to remember who's in control of the game. There's a lot of work being done at the moment, I think, in football in general, at a grassroots level in terms of kind of Sunday league and in terms of youth football as well, and to show officials respect and to mm. stop. There's a shortage of people who want to referee and who want to be assistant referees in this country at the moment, particularly at grassroots level. And that kind of behaviour from Jürgen Klopp, I think, sets that back and damages that because you want people at the higher echelons of the game to behave in the right way. So Jürgen Klopp, Again, for me, I think it's every week. Get in the sea. You can come out next week and I can get you back in again, but get in the sea for yeah. now. Well, that is it for our Monday moans. We're going to continue talking about Liverpool shortly because, well, Jurgen Klopp says Liverpool aren't in the title race, but is that the case? Ten games into the Premier League, who's looking likely to lift the trophy? We'll do a ten-game quarter of the season review next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily. Ten games into the new season for most teams. Some are on nine, but we're pretty much a quarter of way into the season. And we always say you can kind of get an idea of how the table's taking shape after this many games and it's usually a decent time to make a judgment on who's doing well and who isn't doing well 
So I want to take a look at the table and decide who potentially is in with a chance of winning the title and who probably is facing relegation to the championship. And we have to start at the very top of the table with Arsenal. I don't think anyone expected Arsenal, certainly I didn't, to be top of the table 10 games in, particularly top of the table with four points clear. Do you reckon they're the real deal, Marley? Are they genuinely now to be considered title contenders this season? Yeah, I think you you can't get to 10 games in and be top of the league and not be considered title contenders when you've won 90% of your games. Yeah. You know, it's... I know that, that you know, that nobody expects Arsenal to win the league, even though the top of the league and four points clear, because everyone just expects the inevitability of Manchester City to ultimately drag them in and uh, and sort of drown them in their in their horrendous consistency of, of picking up wins. But it's um, it's silly to to say they're not because you know races don't always go all the way. But as as of this point. Now they are in the race. Of mm. course they are. So, so are Tottenham. So, uh, probably Chelsea because they're only a point behind it. If they lose their, if they win their game in hand, um, they're only a point behind um, Man City. So, if Man City are in it, Chelsea are also in it. So, at the minute, yeah, um, Arsenal. Of course they are. Um, not no one expects them to win the league, but as of right now, they haven't done anything to suggest they won't. But it's it's theirs to lose really at the minute. Do they have what it takes, Niall? Do they have the personnel within the Arsenal squad? Or could a couple of injuries, like if they lose Gabriel Jesus for a decent amount of time, if Odegaard maybe picks up a month's worth of injuries, that's going to seriously affect them. They don't seem to have the same depth as maybe some of the other contenders. That's the big question, isn't it? And that's one of the key things that Mikel Arteta will need to do is to try and keep his players fit. I mean, I don't know how he does that apart from managing the rotation. You know, you can't help an impact injury in a match, for example. There's nothing a manager can do about that. But in terms of personnel selection... And workload and managing all of that, I do think that Mikel Arteta certainly has a part to play there. Do you know what this reminds me of, though, Jim? And I totally agree with what Marley says. You can't win nine out of your ten games at the start of a Premier League season and not be considered title contenders. I think the gap's four points at the moment from Manchester City, who, of course, lost their first game at the weekend. Mm. I think, for me, this reminds me of 2015-16 when Leicester City became Premier League champions. And hear me out here because Leicester's the biggest underdog story there's ever been. And it wouldn't be exactly an underdog story for a club the size of Arsenal. I don't think Arsenal fans would appreciate the comparison. Well, (laughs) my point is, with Leicester, and I was trying to actually, before coming on the podcast, trying to figure out what the league table was in 2015-16 after 10 games. I couldn't find the statistics to see what the comparisons are. But I remember this happening in 2015-16. Leicester were right up there in and amongst it. I think it was them, Spurs and Arsenal actually were the three teams that are in and amongst it after the first 10 games. I can hear you furiously Googling trying to find well, it I'm out. I'm trying to look for it, yeah. But, <laughs> but my point is, I was in the camp of a number of people that thought, bloody hell, Leicester are doing well, mm. but they're surely going to fade away soon. And they just kept going and they kept staying at the level. And it got to about February, March and people were still saying, oh, they'll fade away, surely they can't keep it up. And they kept it up the whole season. I and found it. You found it. Go yeah. on. Uh, Leicester were fifth, With three f- points off the off the table, off the top of the table. Man City and Arsenal were on twenty two points. Okay. Wow. So, got to say, you looked really hard for that earlier, Niall. Uh, well, I found I thought, two within thirty seconds. I thought, was that on the Premier League website? <laughs> no, it's on. I've got it on Transfer Market. Maybe my searching skills need a bit of uh, brushing <laughs> up. But I just felt, I just feel similar. To that I feel like Arsenal are going to fade away at some point, and I don't know whether that's just because over the last five seasons they've been a team that's been in the Europa League and. 
haven't really cracked the top four. When was the last time they finished in the Champions League? And now we're talking about them being yeah. title contenders. Mm. You know, so, so that's a big leap, you have to say. So I feel like they're going to fade away. And I think the key for me, which is what I said at the start of the season, was they had some very winnable games at the start of the campaign, even for a Europa League standard Arsenal team. And then they came up against Manchester United and they got beaten at Old Trafford. And for me, the proof was when they bounced back from that. Because last season, when they lost matches under Mikel Arteta, they went on to lose two, sometimes three mm. in a row. And if you remember towards the end of last season when they were trying to get into the Champions League, they had a game against Tottenham and I think they went and lost to Southampton and they lost to another team as well. They ended up losing three on the bounce and that was kind of the pattern through the season. They put these unbeaten runs together, but then when they'd lose, they go and lose two in a row or three in a row before bouncing back. This time they lost one to Manchester United. They've bounced straight back. They've won the rest of their games since then. They haven't even drawn a game. They've won all of them, albeit some of them needing a bit of luck, like Leeds at the weekend, for example. But I think that that will be the test, will be when the chips are down and things are tough, when players get injured, are they going to be able to cope with it? I think that is absolutely huge. And I think you need luck to be able to be in a title race and be competitive. You also need quality. And at the moment, they've got both of those things and they've shown it. So for me, it's still a case of, yes, they are title contenders, but I think after the World Cup, if they're still up and amongst it around Christmas, mm. then absolutely you have to say that they've got a really good chance. What about Man City then? Because I think they are undoubtedly still the favourites, despite the fact they're four points off. They appeared unstoppable at one point, but they stumbled against Liverpool this weekend, just gone. Is it still a foregone conclusion, pretty much, that City will win this league yeah, for me yeah I, I think so um, we've seen we've seen something bizarre from Guardiola yesterday with his, with his tactics and I think that it reiterates the point that the only team that can stop Man City winning the league I think is Man City um, and they can only stumble over themselves um, which will be their own sort of hurdle that they, they might not be able to pass but you know, over a 38-game season, if Guardiola gets his tactics wrong three or four times, you can still win. You can still win 90-something points, easy. You can probably even still win over 100 points. Um, and Man City look capable of, of beating everybody, obviously, and they've got a robot up front scoring goals left, right and centre, and the best midfielder in the world behind him pro providing assists. So I think it's only a matter of time before they pull Arsenal in um, into that like quicksand-type thing of of City just going on relentlessly and, and Arsenal will find it tough in, in certain um, periods of the season with the young squad, inexperienced. I think when if if the table was like this after 25 games and Arsenal had a four-point lead, I'd still back City to, to overtake it because Arsenal's backsides will start going because none of them have won a league before, I don't think. Um, and the manager's not won a league. They've got an average age of about 23. Um, that will play into into the hands of this season somehow um, so yeah I do think City will still win the league and, but Arsenal back in the Champions League would be, it'd be massive for them it's interesting that the pair don't play each other until next year I mean April is the yeah. first time the first time they're going to fix the, well they're supposed to be they're supposed to play each other this week yes they were midweek but it's been moved hasn't it yeah but we don't ah. know when it's going to be scheduled to yet so it, at the moment it's april i think the, first, I, I think I the think first time is january you can get that in so it's at yeah. least next year it's not been scheduled yet but yeah jim jim's right isn't it yeah, yeah, yeah. so the, the technically the first game that they'll play will be april until this one's rescheduled mm -hmm. but it will be before but that's i mean i said this last week that could be a real blessing in disguise for Arsenal because do they really want to come up against a Manchester City team who've just lost to Liverpool no. the weekend? I don't think they do. Mm. 
So, I mean, I think I think that game is is looking huge and just the, the changes in the schedule, like I say, a bit of luck. And Arsenal fans will be sat here listening to this thinking, oh, well, we're in a good spot. We can take Man City on. But I don't know. I, I feel like maybe moving it to later is, is, is a better shout, to be honest, particularly after like Sunday against Leeds to then have played Man City on Wednesday yeah. after they had lost as well. I think the diff- Arsenal feel like they might have got lucky with some results, whereas Man City, I think, against Liverpool were pretty unlucky. I think if Erling Haaland had scored any one of the four chances that he had in that game, that it would have been a different story. But what about Liverpool then? Jurgen Klopp's ruled them out of the title race a couple of weeks back now. Is that the case? Do they fall into that best of the rest category with, I guess we're saying best of the rest is Liverpool, Spurs, Chelsea, Manchester United maybe, and potentially, as much as it pains me to say it, Newcastle? Well, my top four at the start of the season was Manchester City, Liverpool, Tottenham and Manchester United. Didn't have Arsenal in there. Mm. So, I mean, Arsenal have come and gate-crashed my predictions uh, and you know that makes things difficult to call um, particularly with Liverpool sort of showing a resurgence it's almost as if Liverpool have been replaced by Arsenal in, in that sort of title picture but that win yesterday that's a big boost for Liverpool a huge boost particularly considering Mo Salah until midweek against Rangers has been anonymous this season mm. I barely mentioned him yeah he's come back and he scored a hat-trick in six minutes and 12 seconds and then he scored the winning goal and played brilliantly yesterday against a real rival of Liverpool. So that's brilliant to see. Van Dijk played as well yesterday as I've seen him play in ages. Certainly this season, that was his best performance of the season. Um, Fabinho looked better, albeit I think still worked there. Trent Alexander-Arnold didn't play until the end when he came on for a few minutes. But I think that if if Liverpool can get back to that level of performance they showed against Manchester City, which was a different style of Liverpool, by the way, it wasn't quite the same as what we've seen in recent seasons. And I think Jurgen Klopp made a point of this season, he might have to change things up tactically mm. just to keep Liverpool a little bit fresh. Um, there's no reason why, if they play like that, they're, they're if they play like they did yesterday, they're a better team than Manchester United. If they play like they did yesterday, they're a better team than Spurs. I mean, are they better than Arsenal right now? No, but if they play at their optimum, they're probably as good as Arsenal, if not better than and Manchester City, they've already beaten them. But I still think, as Marley says, City are the best team and they're the ones that are probably going to be the team to beat this season. So mm. it's really hard to call. I mean, Liverpool, you'd like to think, will be in the Champions League if they pick their performances up. I think the World Cup is uh, is key for every team in the league this season. They'll have a number of players that are going to the tournament. They'll also have a couple that won't. For instance, I don't think Egypt are at the World Cup, so Mo Salah might get a bit of rest. Salah and Haaland coming into the second half of the season fresh because they're not going to the World Cup is... Uh... <laughs> A little bit scary. Golden Boot's <laughs> going to be interesting this year, isn't it? It's literally going to be... 42-41, I thought. Yeah, 42-41 <laughs> with no goals for any other players. Um, but yeah, I, I think Liverpool are always in with a shout just because of what they've done historically in the last three or four seasons, you have to say. It's mad that Arsenal have got twice as many, more than twice as many points as Liverpool this season. Yeah, mad, that's isn't crazy. It? And that's it. You say Liverpool are on 13 points, still in with a potential chance of upsetting the top of the table. But then we're going to talk about the bottom of the table now quickly. And the teams that we're going to talk about who are relegation fodder are probably five, six points off Liverpool. It's two wins. It doesn't feel like anything, but yet it feels like there's already teams at the bottom of the table that are being cut adrift. Who are your favourites to go down at the moment? So we've got Leicester and Nottingham Forest. Forest. Five points each they've got. Forest are are going down for me. Okay. Then you've got Southampton on eight. You've got Wolves, Villa, Leeds on nine. Everton, Palace on 10. West Ham on 11. Fulham on 12. So I think 
probably... <laughs> I've only just realised since you said that that Southampton have dropped into the relegation yeah. zone. <laughs> yeah. I'm buzzing with that. Um, so, I've watched them a couple of times actually this season, Southampton, and they've not played too badly. They've played pretty well against Manchester United. They played well against Leicester. They came back to win against Leicester, one of their only two wins of the season. That looks really important now, actually, when you look at the bottom of the table. Southampton, eight points. Mm. Leicester, five points. Wolves on nine with a big win over Forest. That can't be underestimated. Aston Villa somehow have stayed 16th despite the fact they got beat 2-0 by Chelsea. So any of those teams, really, they're not all out of the woods. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's like we've said this for years. You've always got two tables there. Do you think anyone's going to get sucked down into that, Marley, that's maybe not included at the moment? I think Leicester City, they need to start picking up some wins very soon. We've seen glimpses of form from them. Southampton... I thought they were very lucky to get a draw at the weekend. I think they could end up in trouble. And Aston Villa as well. I think they're one to pay attention to. I think Steven Gerrard really has some work to do there. And he just seems to be getting... I mean, he said at the weekend he tried to play more positive football than he had before. And it just didn't work. So they're really struggling to find a solution. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting down at the bottom because, you know, Leicester probably going to change the manager soon. Uh, Wolves haven't got a manager. Villa might... I mean... Villa fans want Gerard out. Uh, Leeds are down there, despite having. I mean, if you if you think about Leeds, Leeds are playing quite well this season. But then mm. the season, the the table says they're fifteenth, which is sort of a false place. Um, well, not you, when you look games, at the performances. <laughs> exactly. They got yeah. they got shafted yesterday. To be fair to them, in their opinion, yeah, and yeah. they've got a game in hand over the teams around them. So mm. yeah, and then the team that are bottom of the league is just give a five year, uh, sorry, a three year extension to the manager. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I think I think Hasenhurt was on the edge, by the way, as well. From some of the reports yeah. I'm seeing, um, I think Ralph Hasenhurt could be one of the next to go. He said about uh, retiring after after his contract ends at the end of the season as well. So, but yes, yeah, uh, I expect uh, Forrest will go. Uh, I expect Bournemouth to get dragged into it a little bit more. The tenth at the minute and mm. unbeaten in however many games Gary Neil O'Neill's been char- been in charge, but I still think they'll um, they'll start to struggle sort of post Christmas. Mm. I think Everton will will continue to struggle as well, and and Villa if they don't sort it out because Villa's uh, tactic is to chuck more money at it and hope it sticks, and it hasn't worked for years, and it isn't working this year either. That's the other thing about the World Cup, of course, we won't be able to have the traditional team that's bottom at Christmas will go down because it won't be far enough into the season to have that kind of certainty. So that old cliche is going to be thrown out the window as well. We've gone from talking about the worst teams in the Premier League. We're going to talk about the best players in world football next. It's the Ballon d'Or tonight. And we'll talk about who could potentially pick up the award next. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Final bit of today's Football Social Daily, talking about the Ballon d'Or. It's tonight. It seems to have completely passed me by, and that's where I want to start today's conversation. (laughs) Has the Ballon d'Or lost all of its sparkle? Has it lost all of its significance? Because it felt like a big moment in the footballing calendar not that long ago, and now it seems like no one really cares. I don't care. Do you? Well, I might as well end the podcast here. (laughs) I I really don't. It's lost. Do you know what? I think the difference is, did it not used to be the FIFA Ballon d'Or so yeah. it used to be representative yeah, now they've their own play, and now yeah. they've split and got their own one and it's an award by French football um, it's still it's a magazine it's, it's like FHM's High Street Honey it's like ring, <laughs> the, it's like the ring magazine world champion isn't it <laughs> like Tyson Fury keeps mentioning that it's him but uh, the 
glitz and glamour of the Ballon d'Or will always be there. But I think the the height of the Ballon d'Or was about five or six years ago when it was Messi against Ronaldo pretty much all the time. And it was more about who was going to come third. And then Luka Modric upsets the apple cart in 2018, mm. I think, by winning it. I think ever since the pandemic, or at least when Luka Modric won it, it's kind of lost its appeal. I don't really God's care. Sake, Luka. Who's got the Ballon d'Or. Coming really... along breaking that uh, that monopoly. I don't care, Jim. I really don't. I mean, it's so so subjective anyway, mm. isn't it? It's You know, if you look at some of these players who have won the Ballon d'Or, uh, one of my favourite ever players that didn't play in the Premier League is Pavel Nedved from the Czech Republic. Yeah, Awesome player. Two-footed for Juventus, left-footed, right-footed, played for Lazio as well. Helped the Czech Republic get to a, a European final, which unfortunately they lost to Greece. But for me... He was a, an exceptional player. He won the Ballon d'Or in 2003, which is, you know, you're talking about the same sort of era that Brazilian Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Zinedine Zidane, all of these lads are at the peak of their powers. And then you've got Nedved coming in and winning it. So he's yeah. one of my favourite players. And you kind yeah, of... Henri and Maldini. Henri Maldini, I think Lampard finished third once. I think, did Michael Owen win a Ballon d'Or one year? He did. So, the only Englishman to ever have won it, I think. Was it exactly. So, I mean, it's almost as if it's the recognised token of would people remember Nedved as much if he hadn't have won a Ballon d'Or? We always remember that Michael Owen won a Ballon d'Or. So I still think it has mm. significance. I'm just not that bothered about who who wins it this year. Like Messi and Ronaldo are on the shortlist for the first time since 2005. Messi's mm. not on it. He's been on it every year since then. Supposedly the winners have already been leaked and it looks like Benzema's going to be win Benzema, the big yeah. one. And that's ahead of Mane, Mbappe, Lewandowski, some of the names you mentioned. You think Benzema deserves it? I mean, purely on his yeah. Champions League performances, I guess he kind of deserves it. Yeah, yeah he's, I mean, it's, how, <laughs> how good does it look that Cristiano Ronaldo won so many Ballon d'Ors and then he leaves Madrid and the guy who he played with is then the best player in the world? Like, how good does that make Ronaldo in his Real Madrid days? You know what I mean? Mm. Like, he he silenced pretty much. Like, Benzema's always a, always a great striker, but Benzema's, like, selflessness for, for Ronaldo, like, he's a Ballon d'Or winner now. Like, and he's, and he's you know, I think he's got 30-odd goals last season, was it? I think, I think he got 34 in all competitions or something like that. Whereas when Ronaldo was around, he was getting 17, 18, but also 12, 13 assists because mm. he was giving it to Ronaldo. He was happy for Ronaldo to be that that sort of jewel in the crown type of thing. And then t- when when he's left, it's like, actually, I'm the best player in the world now and I'm going to inspire my team to win the Champions League, beating PSG, beating Man City, beating Chelsea all along the way. I, it's in, it's madness. And, and the fact that he's like, I think he's like 33, 34, isn't he? So... It's a hell of an achievement to to step out the the shadow in such a way that you're also the best player in the world because the other the other one's left. But he's been he was class last season. You can't really argue with with his uh, his selection. Um, I know there's a bit of a void because we've been used to Messi and Ronaldo's insane heights, um, but nobody else has really been close to what Benzema's done. No, but we're gonna see a passing of the torch now right from the generation that is of Benzema's and your Messi's and Ronaldo's to the likes of yeah. Erling Haaland well, it, and Phil Foden this time next year if City win the Premier League and the Champions League who wins it other than Haaland yeah like if he gets 45-50 goals in a season and then City win some silverware to sort of cement him as cement them as you know the best I think Haaland wins it next year 
depending on what happens in the World Cup, of course, because that can have an influence on decisions. And if a player performs well in the league and then in the World yeah, Cup, that can obviously he's got the disadvantage well. of not being there. As yeah. Well, yeah in terms of goalkeepers, Thibaut Courtois looks like he's going to win the Tashin Trophy. Gavi's going to win the Copper Trophy for the best under twenty-one player in the world. And some of the names from the Premier League that are on that short list as well to win the overall Ballon d'Or that we don't think they're going to win, obviously, because we think that Benzema has been awarded it already. Mo Salah, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Phil Foden, Mares, slightly strangely, I think, Kevin De Bruyne as well on that short list. If we were going to narrow it down to just the greatest Premier League players, is there anyone that contend with Kevin De Bruyne at the moment now? I'm trying to think back to last season, Jim, because is, is it not over the last 12 months? So from what, October it's to like, October? It's like a calendar year, isn't it, almost? It's hard to say. I mean, City won the league last season and Kevin De Bruyne was important. He's been really good this season, feeding Haaland. So I guess no. I guess it is Kevin De Bruyne. I don't know. I don't know who else would be challenging De Bruyne, let's just say, for that prize. Is it a bit of a black mark against the Premier League that... The names that are being linked with the overall trophy. So Benzema obviously winning it. Mane no longer in the Premier League. Kylian Mbappe is playing at PSG. Lewandowski as well. A bit of a black mark for the league that claims it is the greatest in the world not to necessarily have the greatest players. No, because it shows we have the greatest teams. Because all of these players need to play a part. Kevin De Bruyne is obviously brilliant, but Haaland's been brilliant this year. There's a number of Manchester City players that are always exceptional. Same with Liverpool. Arsenal showing that at the moment. Whereas if you think about Bayern Munich, you think about Lewandowski. Obviously now he's moved on to Barcelona. You think of PSG, you think of Mbappe, Messi and Neymar. You don't think of Donnarumma in goal. You don't think of Sergio Ramos at the back. You don't think of any of these players. So the Ballon d'Or is an individual award and the fact that there aren't as many Premier League players up for the nomination, I think, shows that maybe the Premier League is moving away from an individually focused league and into more of a, a league where the teams are to be feared, where there's a number of great players in and amongst the side. You think back to some of the best teams in the course of history and, for instance, that Barcelona team that Pep Guardiola man- managed, it wasn't just Messi, it was Iniesta, it was Xavi, it was Busquets, it was Puyol, it was... Victor Valdez in goal. There were so many names that you can remember. Mm. Um, yes, there was individual brilliance from one of those players, but it wasn't like, for instance, Gareth Bale for Tottenham when he was brilliant and it was just Gareth Bale. Can anyone else name any other players that was in that Tottenham team when Gareth Bale got his move to Real Madrid? Because I can't. I can't remember any of them. Vedran Choluka, was oh, he man, still around? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So that, that kind of, that's the way I see it. But we will mention who wins tomorrow on tomorrow's podcast and maybe Messi will turn up in one of his wacky jackets as well, which is always good to see. It's probably the highlight that. But that is it for today's Football Social Daily. Thank you very much for listening. We'll wrap up the day's news later on Football Social Daily Shots. If you haven't subscribed or following this podcast already, make sure you do so and you'll get that as soon as it's ready. And you can find the next podcast you love at Sport social.co.uk that is the home of the sports social podcast network that's it for today Niall Marley nice one cheers guys cheers see you next time football social daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk